I'll be reading Genesis chapter 3 in its entirety this morning. Genesis chapter 3, hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. R.C. Sproul, teaching a class on Martin Luther, once said, The doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. The article, 
that is so important that he, that is Martin Luther, said that if we lose it, we lose Christianity. If you don't have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. So this doctrine of justification, sola fide, by faith alone, is central to what we believe as Christians. But in order to get the doctrine of justification by faith alone correct, we must first understand the covenant of works. As Reformed Baptist pastor Pat Abendroth has said, what a person believes about the covenant of works will determine what they believe about the doctrine of justification. If they get the covenant of works wrong, they will get the doctrine of justification wrong as well. So this is important. We were introduced to the covenant of works last Lord's Day as we examined chapter 2 of Genesis, and we set it in its context of the garden as a temple and the purpose of the Sabbath as part of the moral law of God designed to direct us to the enthronement of Christ as king, having kept the covenant of works and entered his royal rest. So once again this morning, we will be dealing with the covenant of works. In chapter 2, Adam was given the stipulations of the covenant, do this and live do this and die. Now in chapter 3, we will see how miserably he failed in his duties. At the end of chapter 2, we left the history of our first parents while they were still happy and whole in the paradise of God's garden temple known as Eden. At that point, everything remained as God had declared it to be at the end of day Six at the end of chapter one in verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. No corruption, no sin, no flaw, no death, all things which we are all too familiar with. Just as chapter two presented us with three large theological topics to deal with, so too does chapter three. Here we find the fall of man into sin by his breaking of the covenant of works. We find the curse of the covenant pronounced and the promise, the gospel, the good news of the covenant of grace given to us. So again, let's deal with each of these in turn, summarize their important implications, show how they work together, and how all of this directs our attention to Christ. Chapter 3 begins by introducing us to our enemy. It says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So in the words of Indiana Jones, snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? This is why. This is why snakes are so often feared and associated with evil, because of Genesis chapter 3. The snake, we're told, was more cunning than any other beast. And we hear the word cunning, and immediately a negative connotation enters our mind. But you know, we think crafty or deceptive, but that isn't necessarily what the word means. It simply means clever, wise, or skillful. 
The serpent was the wisest and most skillful of the animals that God had made, and God had declared it good. Now, this doesn't really sound like snakes as we think about them today, does it? But you know what it does sound like? It sounds like every story ever written about dragons. Dragons, whether good or evil, in all of the stories are always depicted as wise, skillful, cunning, subtle, and dangerous. If you will remember from the voyage of the Dawn Treader, when the Pevensey's unfortunate cousin, a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, who almost deserved it, first encountered a dragon, he didn't recognize it for what it was. But Lewis tells us that Edmund or Lucy or you would have recognized it at once. But Eustace had read none of the right books. I have no doubt that Adam and Eve recognized the serpent for what it was as the most cunning of all of the creatures that God had made. Adam had named it, after all, on day six. They were supposed to exercise dominion and rule over the serpent. It was the best of the beasts that God had made. And so the true enemy, Satan, chooses to use the best and to twist it and use it for his evil ends. I have no doubt this was an actual physical creature that Satan possessed for his purposes. We know that Satan and his fallen angels can possess animals, as we see demonstrated for us in the unfortunate incident with the pigs in Mark 5. And so Satan possesses the serpent. Elsewhere in Scripture, Satan is known as the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. So Satan, using the best of the creatures, approaches the man and the woman. And then something happens that we find to be odd, but didn't seem to phase Adam and Eve in the least. The creature spoke. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And so the temptation of mankind begins. Now, Satan has not really changed his tactics that much in the last couple thousand years. His attacks and temptations today are not that different than what we see depicted here in Genesis 3. So let's take a look at his approach and the tactics which he uses to lure Adam and Eve into sin. First, notice that he avoids the God-given authority structure. Instead of addressing Adam, he bypasses the man and speaks directly to Eve. Satan still does this today. He loves to turn God's plan on its head. If he can bypass an authority structure that God has put in place, he delights to do so. The husband as the head continues to be one of his favorite to run around. We saw this in 2 Timothy, right? As Paul warns Timothy about false teachers and says that they will creep into households and lead away the women. But it's more than just running around the husband to get to the wife. The family itself is an authority structure that Satan loves to circumvent in our culture today. The husbands, the parents, to the police. Our culture is rife with disrespect 
for authority and the elevation of the individual above any such authority structure. So this is the first step in Satan's plan of attack. Dodge God's given, the God-given authority. His second step is to question or to introduce doubt concerning the word of God. So I've got some alliteration going for you. We dodge the authority. We doubt the word. He says, has God indeed said? Are you, are you sure that's what God said? How can you be certain? Are you positive that the Bible you're reading is accurate? How do you know it doesn't have errors in it? What about these other manuscripts? What, what about these Gnostic Gospels? Has God indeed said? And so Satan continues to sow seeds of doubt concerning the word of God. And with this question, he begins to work these seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. Now notice what Satan does here. He's cunning. He says, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He misquotes God, doesn't he? He makes God's commands seem extreme and, and burdensome. God puts you in this beautiful garden, filled it with wonderful, delightful trees, and he won't let you eat from any of them? How cruel. And then Eve makes a terrible mistake. She engages with the serpent. Now, what should she have done? Well, she should have turned to her husband, who was there with her, and let him do his job. Adam stands there mute and lets his wife exchange words with this creature, a creature who is questioning the maker, a creature that Adam is supposed to have dominion over. And so Eve answers the serpent in verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Well, so good so far. She corrects his error. God has not forbidden them to eat of every tree in the garden. They are free to eat of those trees. But then she continues in verse 3. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, now we've got a problem. God has, Eve has added to the command which God gave. Now, the command was this. If you look back at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there's no command not to touch it. They're not to eat of it. So Eve is added to the words of God. And then she subtly changes the meaning when she says that they aren't to eat or touch it lest they die. That was not what God had said. God had said, if you do, surely you will die. Eve changes the meaning a little bit as if to say the tree might be poisonous. If we eat of it, we might die. But God had said, there's no question about it. You will die if you eat of that tree. And so Satan responds, in verse 4, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Well, now he's moved from doubt to outright denial. He's no longer questioning what God has said. He's flatly denying the truth of it. Who's right? 
Who's wrong? Whose word will you believe? Jesus tells us in John chapter 8 that Satan is the father of lies, that there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So Satan is lying. He is deceiving. He's denying the truth of the word of God. This is still a tactic that he uses today. Has God indeed said, well, that, that can't be right. The Bible doesn't say that, does it? Well, that, that's in the Old Testament. That doesn't apply anymore, right? Jesus never said anything about that. You've heard these arguments. They're the same. They're a denial of the truth of God's word. Doubt, denial, and next he moves to disparagement. We see this in verse 5. You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, do you see what the serpent has done here? First, he stirred up pride in her heart. Just think, you could be like God. And then he disparages the character of God. God only told you not to eat of that tree because he knew that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. God's withholding good from you that's right there within your reach. God doesn't want you to have it. He's lying to you because he's selfish and greedy and doesn't want what's best for you. We see these same sorts of attacks on the character of God today with people drawing the conclusion that God's not really good or really loving unless he affirms this thing that I want affirmed or unless he excuses this sin that I want excused. And so they are at enmity with God, with God, the creator of heaven and earth. They've set themselves opposed to him. Now, people today deny that he exists. They suppress that truth in their unrighteousness. But Adam and Eve were in a state of sinlessness. And it was the attack on the word of God that moved Eve and then Adam to violate God's direct command. John Calvin says in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Adam would never have dared oppose God's authority unless he had disbelieved. In God's word. So this is Satan's chief aim, to turn the hearts of people away from the creator so that they have more confidence in themselves, in the words of man, than they do in the word of God Almighty. And he is successful here. Eve eats of the fruit, says in verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Now, notice there's a phrase here that we've seen repeatedly thus far in the Genesis account, but only applied to God. And now it's used of the woman. So when the woman saw that the tree was good. Up to this point, it has only told us that God saw that things were good. 
But now Eve has put herself in God's place to determine good for herself. She determines that the tree is good for her to eat in spite of God's prohibition against it. And there are several reasons that she uses in her mind to to justify this action. First, she, she sees that the tree is good for food. All the trees in the garden were good for food. But next, she sees that the tree was pleasant and beautiful to look at. All the trees in the garden were beautiful. In chapter 2, verse 9, it says that out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The garden is full of such trees, and she is free to eat of them all. The difference was that God had forbidden them to eat of this particular tree. 17th century particular Baptist Nehemiah Cox, who is likely the editor of our Confession of Faith, says this in his book, Covenant Theology from Adam to Christ. He says, The eating of this fruit was not a thing evil in itself, but was made so by divine prohibition. In other words, this tree wasn't poisonous. It was a good tree. It was off-limits because God said it was off-limits and for no other reason. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now Eve could see that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, to know good and evil. And while the text indicates that there was some goodness that God had reserved for Adam and Eve in the future had they kept the covenant of works, Adam and Eve already had an experiential knowledge of the goodness of God to them, but they had no knowledge of evil. But when they disobeyed God and ate of the tree, in that moment, they gained a knowledge of evil. And I doubt it was what they had expected. The knowledge of evil that they gained was not a knowledge of evil in some abstract sense or evil out there somewhere. It was a knowledge of evil in their own hearts. They had disobeyed the one who made them. They had broken the covenant given to them by an almighty, sovereign God. We see this in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So how did our first parents respond to this knowledge that they gained by eating the tree? this knowledge of evil within themselves, they responded much the same as their children still do to this day. They attempted to cover it up, to hide it, to cover their sin and their guilt and their shame. They used fig leaves. We don't use fig leaves today. We use self-righteous works of our own effort to try and cover our guilt, to atone for our sin. It's obvious this effort at self-atonement didn't work because it didn't alleviate their shame and guilt, because we see in the very next verse, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. I mean, had their attempt at covering their sin and their guilt worked, they they wouldn't have felt any need to hide from the Lord. They hid because it didn't work. They still knew they were guilty. How often do we do the same thing today? 
we commit some sin, whatever it may be, and in our shame and our guilt, we hide from God. We neglect our Bible reading. We feel the, the guilt of our sin, so we shun the presence of God in prayer. We should know better. We have his promise in the scripture saying that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Nevertheless, we continue to follow the example of our first parents and attempt to hide from God when we feel the guilt of our sin weighing upon us. But notice how gracious the Lord is in verse 9. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Adam in his sin hides from the Lord, but the Lord seeks out the sinner. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. In our sin and guilt, we all continue to hide from our maker. Thankfully, the good shepherd seeks out his sheep and brings them back into the fold. So God questions Adam here in verses 9 through 11. He asks, where are you? And so he said, I I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Almost sounds like God's speaking to a toddler, doesn't it? Did you do that? I told you not to. And, And let us not think for an instant that God didn't already know the answer. He knew. He asks because he desires his creature to communicate with him. This is what a relationship involves. And notice that he comes to Adam. He questions Adam. He doesn't question Eve first. He knew she was the one that had the conversation with the serpent. He knew she was the one that took the fruit and ate of it first. But he questions Adam. Why is that? Well, it's because of the nature of of the covenant. A covenant is a formal agreement between a sovereign Lord, in this case God, and his subjects. But the covenant is always transacted with a head or a representative of the people. Nehemiah Cox, again in his book on covenant theology, says, when God has made covenants in which either mankind in general or some select number of men in particular have been involved, It has pleased him first to transact with some public person, head or representative, for all others that should be involved in them. So it was in the covenant of creation, that's what he calls the covenant of works, which God made with Adam in his upright state and with all mankind in him. So Adam was the federal head of humanity, appointed by God to represent all of us, in this covenant. And so Adam is held responsible. The scripture is clear that Eve sinned first, but Adam is the responsible party. It is his sin and guilt which results in judgment. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression, told in Timothy. Henry Morris in his commentary on Genesis makes this observation. There can be no doubt of the message from the scriptures. Eve led the way through her gullibility. She listened to the serpent. She clearly disobeyed God's command. Adam, however, openly rebelled. 
And so it is Adam's sin as the federal head that is the breaking of the covenant and that results in all of humanity who are in Adam being subject to the curses of the covenant, which is death and the fall into sin. Here are some excerpts from Romans chapter 5, which if you want the best commentary you can read on Genesis 3, go read Romans 5. Here are some excerpts from it. Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Verse 14, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Verse 15, by one man's offense, many died. Verse 16, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. Verse 17, by one man's offense, death reigned through the one. Verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. You get the point. Adam's sin brought condemnation. It was Adam as the federal head who was held responsible. So that's why God addresses him first in the garden. And God confronts him with his sin. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And what is Adam's response? Does he own his sin, take responsibility for his actions? No, He does what his children still do to this very day. He shifts the blame to someone else. In verse 12, he says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Now, Adam does two things here. First, he tries to shift the blame over to his wife. Secondly, he's kind of blaming God. It's the woman you gave to be with me. I mean, the woman did it, but you gave her to me, God. It's kind of your fault. Now, I don't know that we're that bold to openly blame God for our sin. Maybe some people are. But we're definitely well-practiced at shifting the blame to other people. We see this even in young children. And they don't have to learn it. They do it by instinct, which shows you the pervasiveness of the sin nature which we inherited from Adam. So God then asks Eve, and she does the same thing, blaming the serpent. In verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So she shifts the blame to the serpent. And so beginning in verse 14, we encounter what we call the curse. This is the pronouncement by a holy and just God of judgment and punishment for the actions which broke the covenant. Now, you could think of this as a sort of trial. First, God as a prosecutor questioned the guilty parties, and now the judge is pronouncing their sentencing. And we see here one of those chiastic forms that we see so often in the scriptures. God began by questioning Adam. Then he questioned Eve, who blamed it on the serpent. God will start by pronouncing judgment upon the serpent, and then Eve, and then Adam, working his way back up the chain of command. God begins here with the serpent in verse 14. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So a couple of things of interest here. Notice that the serpent is cursed more than the cattle and other beasts. More than. He isn't cursed while they are left with the blessing of God. The beasts are subject to the curse. They were subject to Adam's authority as their appointed Lord and protector. But the serpent is cursed more than the rest of the animals because of the role that he played. From that day forward, the serpent was made to crawl on his belly. Well, did he have legs before this? Maybe. Could have been a dragon. I'm just saying. The reference to eating dust, don't let that confuse you. I mean, we think snakes don't eat dust, right? I mean, they're slithering around on the dusty ground. They probably do ingest a certain amount of dust, but that's not their food. But this is about the humbling of Satan who had used the serpent. The prophets, particularly Isaiah and Micah, pick up this language of eating dust and use it. Speaking of the future kingdom of the Messiah, Micah says of the nations, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. In other words, the nations will be humbled before the Lord. Isaiah, speaking explicitly of the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 65, says, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The wolf, the lion, and the serpent will no longer hurt or destroy. They won't be a threat. The New Testament uses these three predators as metaphorically to describe Satan and his followers. In the new creation, there will be no danger of harm from Satan or false teachers. No danger of harm from these predators, the wolf, the lion, and the serpent. They will be returned to their peaceful design from before the fall, but Satan and his forces will be humbled and subjected to their eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And we're going to skip verse 15 in our text and come back to it in a moment. But let's look at the curse pronounced on the woman in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to bring forth offspring, as we said in chapter 2, to populate the earth, to fill it with those made in the image of God who would worship him in a garden temple that should have been expanded to fill the entire earth, that should have been a joy and a blessing. Instead, it will be attended with pain and sorrow. The marriage relationship should have been one of mutual cooperation under the loving leadership of the husband. Instead, it will be marked by strife as husband and wife wrestle for control, each exerting their own will rather than her being subject to him and him being subject to God. 
Matthew Henry says in his commentary, if man had not sinned, he would always have ruled with wisdom and love. And if the woman had not sinned, she would always have obeyed with humility and meekness. And then the dominion would have been no grievance, but our own sin and folly make our yoke heavy. And finally, God pronounces the curse upon Adam in verses 17 through 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, but thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Adam's work should have been a delight and a joy in service to God, cultivating the garden, taking dominion over the entire earth. But now it will be labor, marked by sweat, weariness, even blood, as he struggles to have dominion over an earth to wrestle from it food when it wants to produce thorns. The very earth will resist his efforts. And eventually Adam and all other men after him will die and return to dust. Now this is the second mention of dust in the chapter. That ought to catch our attention. The serpent who represents Satan will eat dust. Men will die and return to the dust. In other words, Satan's menu has no other option on it than death. That's it. Satan will never taste of life. But for the man, this isn't the case. The life that should have been his upon completion of his work in the garden, that promised eschatological rest, pictured in the form of the tree of life, is not taken away. The hope of it remains, but the means of attaining it has now changed. But first, let's finish examining the results of the curse. In verse 20, Adam names Eve, demonstrating his dominion over her in a way that is analogous to his naming of the animals and his dominion over them. This reflects on verse 16 that his rule over his wife is harsher now than it would have been had he not fallen into sin. Then God makes for them coverings of skin from animals and clothes them in verse 21. This reflects on their own attempts to clothe themselves with fig leaves in verse 7. The covering they contrived for themselves was inadequate. God must clothe them and blood must be shed to atone for their sin. Nehemiah Cox comments that it is likely at this point as God slays the animals and uses their skin to make clothing that God instructs Adam in the sacrifice of animals to atone for their sins. And we'll see it next Lord's Day, Lord willing, in chapter 4. Adam's sons bring sacrifices One is acceptable and one is not. Well, how are they supposed to know? It's likely because God has instructed Adam at this point. And then in verse 22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Man has taken 
that which was forbidden him. And so that he does not now attempt to take that which has been promised him upon the completion of the work, the Lord now evicts Adam from the garden. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now this is full of all sorts of significance. The work had been to tend and to keep the garden, to have dominion over the whole earth, expanding the borders of the garden to fill the earth so that it became a temple for the Lord. The man broke that covenant. Now he is expelled, which means he can't do the work. He can't tend and keep the garden. He can't expand its borders. He's not even allowed to enter it. And the way to the promised tree of life is barred to him. Cox again comments, Yea, now he, that is Adam, was to be taught the utter impossibility of obtaining life by a broken covenant. Through the guarding and prohibiting of all access to that tree by the cherubim's flaming sword that turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. It's impossible to keep the covenant of works at this point. So now let's return to verse 15. Embedded in the curse upon the serpent was a promise of hope. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You shall bruise his head and he, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise of the covenant of grace. It's the promise of it. It is not the enactment of the covenant of grace as our confession of faith says in the chapter on the covenants this was the promise of the gospel revealed first to Adam in the garden and then by farther steps throughout the ongoing revelation of the Old Testament until the full discovery thereof in the New Testament but this is the promise of a new covenant not with Adam but with the seed of the woman who is Christ born of a woman, but not of a man. Satan would strike at Christ as a serpent strikes at a person's heel, but Christ would triumph where Adam had failed. Christ would keep the covenant. He would build the temple. He would subdue the whole earth. He would earn the reward of life. You see now the importance of the covenant of works to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It is impossible to attain the life promised by the covenant of works. We can't do it. We don't have access to the tree of life. The way has been blocked. We must trust wholly in the one who did, who is Christ. And so Christ came, God in the flesh, to do what Adam could not, to keep the covenant in complete obedience to the will of the Father. But he doesn't just keep the covenant. He also suffered the curse for us. And as we've seen so many times in Scripture, there's a, a blessed reversal of the curse in the triumph of Christ. Consider these parallels between Christ and the curse, which is found here in Genesis 3. Some demonstrate his bearing the curse for us, and others show his triumph and the reversal of the curse. The curse brought sorrow in childbearing, 
Christ bore the curse. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53.3. The whole of creation, the beasts, the ground, it was all cursed because of Adam's sin. And Paul writes in Romans, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's Romans 8, 20 and 21. Well, where does that liberty come from? It comes from the Son. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. John 8, 36. While the earth is cursed, the man must toil and sweat to bring forth food from the ground. As Christ worked to fulfill the covenant and obedience to the will of the Father, Luke records for us in chapter 22, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Despite our toil and labor, the ground continues to bring forth thorns. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. John 19.2 The tree, remember, was pleasant to look at and desirable, but Christ had no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah 53.2 And then Christ was hung on a tree. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That first tree in the garden was planted by God. The tree on which Christ was crucified was planted on Golgotha by men. Adam was forbidden to eat of the tree of the garden. And yet Christ invites all to come to him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Man is cursed to return to the dust, which is death. And in David's great messianic psalm, Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes from the cross, we read in verse 15, you have brought me to the dust of death. For the Savior died, according to his manhood, in our place that we might have life in him. Adam was expelled from the garden paradise for taking that which did not belong to him. He was a thief. Christ speaks to another thief, one who had faith and says, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The way to the tree of life is barred by the sword of a cherubim. Arthur Pink comments and says, That sword was sheathed in the side of the Savior. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. Zechariah 13, 7. And one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. John 19, 34. And where the way to the tree of life had been closed to Adam in the garden, the way is now open. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John fourteen six. Adam did not get to taste of the tree of life in the garden, but was expelled from paradise. But to all of those who are in Christ by faith, we read in Revelation 2, 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, 
which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The curse was enacted because Adam failed to serve God and keep the covenant. Christ kept the law perfectly on our behalf, and all of those who are in him by faith will enter his rest in new heavens and new earth, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Revelation 22.3, apart from Christ, the covenant of works condemns us. But to those who are in Christ by faith, the covenant of works has been fulfilled. And we are to be partakers of the promised everlasting life and rest together with him in paradise to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray.